Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Ludmers. Welcome everyone to Revolution and good morning. Thank you for listening. It's nice to have you here enjoying and joining in our show and our conversation, first show of the new year for Revolution anyway. And as per usual, we're going to start off our show with our roundtable discussion. And I am joined by my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Hello. John Caracella. Good morning. And Deb Caracella. Good morning. And for our roundtable discussion, I'm actually going to challenge my co-hosts, and I would like to challenge everyone listening, to do this in a slightly new and different way, since it's a new year. And the topic is going to be on becoming new. And this is a topic and some questions that I saw in a newsletter from the Tarot School in New York, and they were quite thought-provoking for me. And I thought, perfect fodder for jumping off into the new year with some questions for each of us to think about. So the new process to try that I'm going to ask my co-host and all of you listening to also perhaps try to do is we're going to, uh, I'm going to ask the question, just close your eyes, say whatever it is that comes to you in that moment when you close your eyes in response to that question. Uh, If you're listening um, to the show, I would encourage you to do this and perhaps have either your computer or a journal or something ready so that you could perhaps make note of what it is that comes up for you for the question as well, because it's always interesting to look back on it and then perhaps ask the question again at a later time and see what comes up. So having said that, what I'm going to do is just ask the question, ask the co-host to close their eyes. I'll call out a name. They will simply give their immediate response as to what's coming to them intuitively rather than thinking about it so it's not coming from their head versus coming from someplace in their subconscious or elsewhere beyond. (laughs) Um, And we will see what comes up. So the first question, and the topic here is becoming new. And the first question, what is new? So for that word, when you hear that word, what is new? Mildred Lynn McDonald. Well, hi, C. Latimer's. To me, new is an ah moment. And I go, ah. John Garasella. New growth, like um, the emergence of leaves on a tree. Deb Garasella. New is fresh, never before experienced. What does new mean? John Carasella. Uh Openness and uh, openness and an embracingness. What does new mean, Deb Carasella? Unknown. What does new mean, Mildred Lynn McDonald? The essence is intact 100%, like fresh as a daisy or crisp. What is newness? What is newness, Deb Caracella? Completeness, fresh, very similar to what Mildred just expressed, a, uh, a totality 
of of brand new unexplored. What is newness, Mildred and McDonald? The opposite of oldness. What is newness, John Carousella? Newness is sheets hanging on the line in the breeze. And what's the newness about that is the is the contact between the air molecules, the breeze, and the sheets that has never happened before. How does new happen? How does new happen, Mildred and McDonald? Hmm. I go back to an ah moment. So it could be a jolt or maybe it's a gradual evolution. And when you talk to me first, when you first mentioned that, it's a shift in energy or an expansion in consciousness, space. How does new happen, John Carousella? Uh, new happens when, in the moment of communion, when something that has never interacted with something else before interacts with something. How does new happen, Deb Carousella? It's automatic and, and continuous. It's moment by moment by moment because each moment is new from the moment you just experienced. Where does new come from? Where does new come from, John Carousella? New comes from... It's hard to put into words. Uh, the, the short answer is the void. Um, the more articulate answer is new comes from the emergence of Emergence from the void. Where does new come from, Deb Carousella? New comes from within and without. New is everywhere. Where does new come from, Mildred and McDonald? What I got is if new is true, then it comes from universal truth. So that finishes our questions. And I would encourage everyone listening to just let what it is that comes up sit with you over a period of time and then come back to revisit the questions, see what comes up at a different time. And this is a way to perhaps start a new year, perhaps to start a new month, to start a new moon cycle by asking questions of what is new. And we may be surprised as to what we see or what comes up for us that is new or ready to be new in that moment or in our lives. Thank you very much to our co-hosts for joining in this new way of trying our round <laughs> table. Uh, thank you to Mildred Lynn McDonald. You're welcome. To John Carousella. Always a pleasure. And to Deb Carousella. You're welcome. And I would encourage you to stay tuned if you would like to call in to receive a reading later in the show. You're welcome to do that. You can Skype in from the show page or call 646-716-5510 to get into the queue. And coming up is going to be my revolutionary guest this month, Lisa Dale Miller. And we're going to be talking about divination and the psyche. What is really going on when we are engaging in the process of divination? And what do we think is going on? 
So stay tuned for that, and we'll be right back. I am Linda Wiley, and this is Living Well with Linda. Your monthly guide to the well-being of your body, mind, and spirit. It's about an alternative approach to life, healing, and living well in our changing world. Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food. a return to this understanding of the truth of food and the value of food within our lives. Our body is a machine for living. It is organized for that. It is its nature. Let life go on in it unhindered and let it defend itself. It will do more than if you paralyze it by encumbering it with remedies. Leo Tolstoy, War and Peace. To realize our connection with all of life and the plant and animal kingdom and how we support and help each other in our process. I am Linda Wiley and this is Living Well with Linda. Hello and a happy new year to all. Thanks for joining me once again. May this year be your best yet individually and ours collectively. The fabrication of the illusion we have come to call, call life grows daily, it seems, as many are starting to see behind the veils of deceit and betrayal of our government and world powers. So many lies abound that it's sometimes difficult to find the truth. Yet we must know that it is not our way of life, per se, that is destroying the planet, but that of the corporation and elites, which are the governments, all the same thing. For life to survive, we must look with new eyes and be willing to step out of the lies and into the ancient wisdoms of living in harmony with the earth and each other. To remember our spiritual heritage, to know that if the heart was online, none of what is going down would be so. We must reclaim our truth or lose our way even further. And death will be the outcome for all if we do not take heed now and see that life is precious and fragile at this point, and so are we. Regaining self-sufficiency and self-responsibility are the only ways to make life forward-moving and sustainable. Nature offers us all we have ever needed to live in peace, health, and harmony. So as we see the decaying reality all around us, it's time to look at new ways or old ways made modern. One such model is called permaculture. It has captured my heart and turned into a passion with hope for all of us to live in the truth we carry within our hearts. It's time to see that this false reality filled with the lies is about to crumble. It is not sustainable. What shall we do and how shall we survive? It's time to take a deep look at what's really going on and how we can move forward in a way that embraces and welcomes 
all of us into the truth of life. Permaculture is a model of regeneration for a world badly in need of help. First, let us look at the difference between agriculture and horticulture. Toby Hemingway is a wonderful teacher and deep seer of truth. He says it this way. The main premise is that agriculture, even non-industrial agriculture, is unsustainable. He approaches the issue from an anthropological perspective by examining prehistoric cultures that became extinct as a direct result of transitioning from horticulture to agriculture. Hemingway defines horticulture as food production using small gardens and food forests that incorporate and support the existing ecosystems. It empowers the people and keeps the spiritual life alive as it supports community and the growth thereof. Agriculture, in, in contrast, destroys ecosystems to create vast clear-cuts dedicated to single crops. The archaeological records reveal that agriculture first developed in the Fertile Crescent of Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq, around 10,000 BC. At the time, it was lush forest and bush. However, after 3,000 years of artificial irrigation and the disruption of the ecosystems, the soil became too salty to support life. The land, which became a desert, still has not recovered. The same thing happened in ancient Egypt and Greece. Archaeological evidence reveals that all agricultural civilizations follow a typical pattern of soil depletion after an average of a thousand years. Then they either die out or moving along to a new land via conquest. According to Hemingway, the Oil Age was a great boon to our current agricultural civilization. Or was it? Or was it? Farm machinery and petroleum-based fertilizers and pesticides provided an immense burst into the world of food production. Unfortunately, this only hastens soil degradation and the disempowering of life and connection to spirit, the land, and the ancient wisdoms. At the same time, a steep price increase related to oil and natural gas scarcity made it unavailable for a growing number of farmers, especially in the developing world. This all connects into permaculture. So while winter drags on, put some tea on and dream the new world and how you can be part of this evolution of ideas. What can you do to help support life, community, and to bring about the changes that must happen if we are to survive what might be coming? We are not all farmers, but everyone has something everyone to bring something to, the to the table as communities sprout up to support life. Permaculture is the spirit of this age, a new earth a ethic new earth dedicated ethic. to helping heal our planet and ourselves for all is one, as above, so below, as within, so without. There is no way to change this. Permaculture involves bettering human relationships to the living world around us, and creating a harmony of successful, abundant interrelationships. As an ethos, permaculture is simply what is appropriate action at this time of transition in the history of our planetary ecology and evolution. Unlike ethics, which represents a moral imperative, the principles of permaculture are guidelines to help us create a harmonic and healthy home world. 
Thus, permaculture is the study of those sustainable systems or enduring systems that support human society, which include horticulture and intellect, traditional and scientific, architectural, financial, and legal. Permaculture, permanent culture, that which remains to the end, that which persists throughout. Culture, cultivation of land or the intellect, now generalized to mean all those habits, beliefs, and activities that sustain human societies. Thus, permaculture is a sustainable design system that aims at living in perpetuity for all. The core of permaculture is conscious living, sustainable development, and resource conservation. Its ethics include and are based on care of the earth, care of the, earth, care of the, people, care of the people, and fair shares for all. It is a response to the industrial urbanization of the earth and resulting toxification and pollution of the biosphere. It is a way of working with rather than against nature. It is about protracted and thoughtful observation rather than protracted and thoughtless labor. It is the harmonious integration of people into the landscape in such a way that the land grows in richness and beauty just as we do and will in the system of living in truth at last. It is the ancient ways made new in a language for our times. It is a, indeed a deeply integrated way of living and seeing life, one that allows all to come into their fullest. Shall we? Shall we? Shall come along. Come it's along. the best ride I could find in this circus monkey show that seeks to enslave us all further at the destruction of the very heart of life, which is our heart. To heal, the heart must be found, and lived, be found and lived again. This is a way. This is a way. Blessings to all on this road to freedom. With community, With care, care, and honest living, and honest all, things are possible. all things are possible. So here's a list of some videos that you can watch on YouTube, easily available. Farm for the Future about a woman who inherits a farm, a traditional agricultural farm, and the transition that it goes through. Earthship Biotexture, and that's B-I-O-T-E-C-T-U-R-E. And it's uh, a new word, as we create new words to go along with our new realities. And Earthship is, is creating a home. It's a home that is made through re of recycled goods, is very creative, it's sustainable, it's green, and completely affordable. Another one is Redesigning Civilization with Permaculture by Toby Hemingway. It is so profound and so beautiful and so moving, highly recommended. Global Gardener 4 by Bill Mollison. Bill Mollison is one of the founding fathers of permaculture, and he takes you around the world showing you how horticulture in an urban setting is supporting so many people still today. And then another is called Food is Free. And it's how you can create in your community a permaculture, free food, gifting neighborhood. It's lovely. Books would be Beginning Permaculture by Bill Mollison and Creating Life Together. Practical Tools to Grow Eco-Villages and Intentional Communities by Diana Leaf Christian. Wild Fermentation by Sander Ellix Katz. And Real Food Fermentation, 
Preserving Food with Live Cultures by Alex Lewin, L-E-W-I-N. This is about health for our bodies. Fermentation offers bacteria that keeps the gut, gut, the gut healthy. And the gut is one of the most important parts of the overall functionings of our body, our health, and our well-being, and allows us to store food over longer periods of time. Tips. Design a garden. Read seed catalogs. Only organic and heirloom seeds, please. Territorial seeds, Peaceful Valley, uh, Seeds of Change, the New Organic Seed Company, and the likes of these. The land can grow food with the right tools and understanding. Create a garden out of your front lawns. Create an urban free food community. Get your neighbors together on this. See how each of you and the area flourishes by creating life together. Create an evening for the neighborhood to come together and watch a film, have dinner. Love one another. Love, one love, yourself. love yourself. See that life can be different and that the creation of new life and love depends upon us right now. No one's going to save us and the corporations don't care. Rest. Rest deeply for the earth is at rest. Eat warming, nourishing foods that support life and looking within and making anew our insides for when spring comes to sprout new life. Share food with friends. Read and dream the new dream. Then living it will be the next stage. Thank you. And remember, it's only a dream. 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 Thank you for joining me today for this segment of Living Well with Linda. I'm Linda Wiley. If you would like to chat further with questions, comments, or consultations, please contact me at linda at prestia.com. Thank you and blessings to all. Blessings to all. Have a great rest of the day. revolutionary guest to this month is Lisa Dale Miller, Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based psychotherapist, 
artist, astrologer, and tarot reader. Lisa works with adults who struggle with depression, anxiety, substance abuse, chronic pain, grief, and emotion dysregulation, professionals in high-stress careers or life transition, couples in distress, and adolescents. Lisa is a certified somatic experiencing practitioner, a teacher of mindfulness-based relapse prevention for addiction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression relapse prevention, and mindfulness-based stress reduction. She also presents at conferences on the clinical applications of mindfulness and Buddhist psychology. Lisa has been a yogic and Buddhist meditation practitioner for more than 35 years. She has a master's degree in counseling psychology from Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara, where her master's thesis, Uncertainty, Nothingness, Beingness, revisioned depression through the lenses of philosophy of quantum physics, existential psychology, and Buddhist psychology. To find out more about Lisa and her work, you can visit her website at www.lisadalemiller.com. So please help me welcome this month's revolutionary guest, Lisa Dale Miller. So welcome to the show, Lisa Dale Miller. I'm not going to say all of the alphabet that comes after your name, but if you want to clarify what, you know, basically using half of the letters in the alphabet means, you're welcome to do that. Uh, but we are certainly, I'm very excited to have you here on the show. So thank you for being here today. Well, of course, I'm very excited because you and I have known each other a long time. It is true. So being in conversation with you is something I always look forward to. <laughs> um, so Maybe you can explain to people in the work that you do today what what it means to be a Buddhist or a mindfulness-based um, psychotherapist. So, um, well, of course, mindfulness has infiltrated, I would say at this point, almost all of the clinical disciplines that we've got for physical and mental um, health care. And mindfulness is a broad set of skills that people can use in different ways in order to be able to um, manage or even relieve um, various kinds of mental disorders and emotional disorders in a person's thinking and the way that they feel about themselves and their lives. And so mindfulness-based psychotherapy is a skills-based discipline. And it's different from Buddhist psychology because Buddhist psychology is more dealing with the deeper underlying understanding of the way the mind and the self actually function. And seeing and knowing your experience as it actually is rather than with some of the distortions that the mind tends to bring to cognition and to emotion. So when you put these two things together, you get a psychotherapeutic process that's very engaging, um, very transformative, um, and is very useful in the moment to alleviate suffering for the person in their own mind, as well as for 
the beings who are around them. And can you just, because I think the term mindfulness has become a very popular yes. term. And so can you maybe just clarify what mindfulness is and what mindfulness practice is in the way that you work with it and offer it to your clients? You know, the funny thing is, uh, I'm, I have a book coming out on the market, and it, it is a clinical textbook on Buddhist psychology. And uh, my publisher insisted I use the word mindfulness <laughs> in the title, um, even though my main title didn't have the word mindfulness. And though it is a book on clinical use of Buddhist psychology, the word mindfulness is not featured very much in the book. I <laughs> tend to use the actual words like attending or um, mindfully noticing. And mindfulness is now, it's like a code word for a slew of other things. So it's sort of been rendered meaningless in a way. As a matter of fact, we even have a term for it now. We call it mindfulness, which is the meaninglessness of what people say. But what I would say um, in, in Buddhist psychology, mindfulness is a skill that involves recollecting. That's the actual translation of it in, from Sanskrit to English is remembering. So when we're being mindful, we are remembering to be aware of what is actually occurring. And you're doing that with a kind of discernment. So it isn't just um, being aware, it's more being aware and being able to discern the, the reality and nature of what is arising for you, whether that's internal or external. And then I would also say that even in the clinical world, Mindfulness has become this umbrella that encompasses all of the heartfulness practices of Buddhist psychology, uh, the practices of cultivating compassion, loving kindness, um, joy for the happiness of others, and equanimity. And so it's more of an umbrella now. And the beautiful thing is all of this boils down to mental training. Uh, everything in our brain is eminently plastic and trainable. So if a person has a mental tendency toward depression or toward anxiety, those are just mental habits that a person has managed to get lost in. And what mindfulness allows a person to do is to be able to come into relationship with those habits and to bring awareness to them and to have the spaciousness to make other choices. And neurobiologically, pretty soon, if you're training the mind to be aware and to rest in the spaciousness and then choose something else, the neural pathways to depression and anxiety atrophy after a while because other synapses and neural pathways have actually been generated for the new skills. So um, there's a lot of spirituality, of course, in Buddhism, and there is that deep desire to awaken to one's true nature. And that actually happens neurobiologically in the brain. There's so much research and science, neuroscience now on meditation and uh, the basic practices of training the mind. So it's but, a very useful tool in psychotherapy. I'm happy to have them. And mindfulness is something that can be done without any particular spiritual aspect or tradition or belief. 
Well, that's why we call it mental training. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although the, I must say the point of the book that I wrote is that mindfulness has been so watered down and separated from its actual roots that the whole point of the textbook that I've written is to give the clinical community actual Buddhist psychology so that they know the philosophy of mind that is underneath, that underlies the practices, and they have a better sense of why one would want to mentally train, what the point of mental training is, and not only that, but where you can actually go all the way to liberating the mind from suffering to full awakening, which is absolutely possible. It makes me think that Buddhist psychology is the bell and mindfulness is the door shut. Um, I hope your listeners understood that analogy. Maybe you'd like to explain <laughs> Bell and Dorje. <laughs> well, just that Buddhist, the Buddhist psychology aspect really takes in that deeper understanding wisdom aspect of things, which is the symbol of the bell. Yes. And the Dorje is that active principle and mindfulness seems to be about how to take that deeper understanding and wisdom and put it into action to work on changing the mental thinking or overcoming a habit or changing a pattern. So it's that more active aspect that That's right. we can do with the, uh, the deeper understanding. Yes. Um, so you've also in your past life, let us say, <laughs> since we're being Buddhist about it. That's right. Um, My past incarnation. <laughs> <yes. life. laughs> um, for many years, you worked as an astrologer and a tarot reader. Um, and the primary focus of the conversation that we wanted to have today is almost like combining these two lives um, because it's, you know, and I think that this time of year is especially when you see a lot of people seeking out readings of some sort because mm -hmm. it's a new year from a calendar standpoint. Um, and so people want to know what's going to happen in the coming year or what do I need to plan for? So they go to look for whether it's an astrology reading or a tarot reading or palmistry or whatever kind of reading. Um, and so what we wanted to talk about was what's really happening when we combine divination and the psyche, what is it that, and you had sent a question and I kind of thought of it two ways was what do we think is happening? <laughs> and then what might you consider to actually be happening when we look at divination and the psyche together? And maybe you can um, make sure to define those terms, divination and psyche, just to make sure people understand what we mean by them and where we're coming from with this. Yeah. Well, I I first want to say that uh, to the listeners, I envision this as a dialogue that, you know, I feel as though it's true. I have a tremendous amount of clinical training at this point in my life. So, um, you know, I can speak about the psyche from the clinical perspective, as well as from what you and I would consider a divination perspective. Um, on the other hand, I want to start the whole conversation by saying that Nobody knows what consciousness is. And I really do mean nobody. And, and I mean that in the strictest scientific sense. And there is a huge amount of academic and scientific research that has been going on for 30 years now to try and 
delineate what is consciousness. And it's a very important thing for you and I to know that nobody knows what it is because we also get to say, we don't have any idea what's happening actually when we are working in the realm of divination. At least I think I could confidently say, I don't have any idea what is actually happening. I will go on record and say that I do, but I cannot share that with people because they're not ready. But perhaps at some point, if well, the listener... maybe you would like to share it with me, because maybe there's something that you know about it that I don't know about it, but I would like to know about it. <laughs> well, I think that people will just have to continue listening to my show, because maybe at some point it will become available for me to be able to share with them, and then by happenstance, they'll be listening. So I digress. Please continue. <laughs> well, that was quite a digress. <laughs> just went against the entire field of science. (laughs) Oh, science. (laughs) So I think um, what I do want to say is that a lot of what I feel both of us do is presence. And there is something about presence that creates a container for what is known in physics as non-locality. So in the quantum realm, uh, particles actually have a non-local relationship with each other. Um, Information can actually travel very, very long distances between particles. If those particles have had contact at some point, it's actually called entanglement. So quantum physics, gives us a basis of principles by which you and I might be able to use to speculate about what might be going on when two minds are in a container which is um, turned toward a particular endeavor like I'm interested in what's happening inside of me, how I'm thinking and feeling about my life right now and where that might be going. And when you invite another human being into that kind of exploration, to me, something must be happening non-locally in the communication aspect between two minds. Would you agree? I would. And so when you say non-locally, how would you define or describe that for people listening? So non-local means that um, two objects or entities are not actually physically touching each other, but they are exchanging information between each other. And this is why, you know, because for me, the, the non-locally on a kind of a, a layman's level um, yes. is why, because I get asked this all the time, is why doing a reading for someone over the phone yeah. or through Skype is yeah. still just as valid, just as effective Yes. As it is in person. There is a benefit and there is something nice about being in person with for a session. But if it's not possible, that doesn't take away from the effectiveness of the session. And do you think that in a therapeutic sense, it can be just as successful uh, to do a session with a client, say, through phone or Skype versus being in person? 
Actually, I know it's just as effective because um, I work in Silicon Valley. So often uh, my patients are busy business people and, you know, there's times when they are overseas or, or they're at a business meeting, they're in another state. And so I will do work with them using Skype or FaceTime. And there is no difference. To me, there's no difference. Now, that said, what, what I will say is what I don't do, and there are therapists out there who are doing this, um, I won't start a therapeutic relationship at a distance. Um, it's a tool that I will use once I'm, we already have established a therapeutic relationship in physical space. Then there's no difference. And part of that is because one of the initials after the, the <laughs> after my name is I am um, tra I'm a somatic experiencing practitioner. So I, I actually do somatic psychotherapy as well. And that's working at the level of the body. So I need to be able to see the whole body. Right. I need to have that presence with the whole body. But again, this brings up that point of presence. What actually is when we're present with someone, what are we actually doing? Well, I, for me, I would say that we're actually energetically engaging each other. So when you say energetically, what does that mean to you, energetically? Uh, well, for me, it means there is something at a deeper level and an unseen level that is connecting or interacting and taking place. And that coming into the presence of the other person, and for me, whether it's physically or not, but coming into that presence allows that energy to now intermingle. And yes. something from that can come that wouldn't have otherwise if that energy hadn't intermingled. I would agree. So there's two interesting aspects of the way the human mind functions that I'll just throw out here so we can put it in the mix. Um, the first is, as human beings, we actually have something called theory of mind. Have you ever heard of theory of mind? I have not. Oh, this is great. So we have the capacity to posit the existence of a mind in another human being. And on a mundane level, it's, okay, I think I can know what you're thinking, like maybe by an expression you're having on your face. Does that give credence to also positing that when we're out in public and we can easily come to the conclusion, obviously that person does not have a mind because of the way they're acting or talking? <laughs> well, what we're positing is they have a mind that might be different than ours, but we know that they're acting that way because they have a mind. So theory of mind is, a, is an assumption that we live with because we have the neural mechanisms for empathy. Empathy actually allows us to assume what other people are thinking because when we see something happen, we have motor neurons in our brain that emulate, they actually mimic the activity. So let's say i walking down the street and I see someone trip. In my mind, I'm tripping. I'm actually creating the experience of tripping in my own mind in, through this motor neuron system. 
so that I have the empathetic feeling of, oh my gosh, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> like stubbing your toe, you know, oh, I almost fell and hurt myself. Yeah, I have all of that so that I can actually empathize with the experience the other person is having. And by empathize, you mean feel it on some level. And feel I, the experience. Right, and I think that that's, that speaks to even why, even in this day and age, well, some people would have thought that perhaps going to live concerts and things would have gone away because now we can just watch them on TV or whatever. But yeah. we find that there's been such an explosion of, um, it, it, like, it used to be called Raves, now it's the EDM, the electronic uh, music scene. But it's these big festivals mm -hmm. that are actually, you know, three, four hundred thousand people will come together. And I think it's this theory that actually plays into why those are such satisfying and attractive Yes, for people, because you get to go and you're not just feeling what you're experiencing from it. You're now tapping into and experiencing what this collective of people That's are true. experiencing. And it's a much <laughs> broader, you know, more expansive kind of experience and feeling to have. Yes. Would that fall under this? Sure. Yes. And partly that's because we're tribal animals. So we feel more, we emote more when we have more of us sharing in a particular experience. And so the, this ability to posit another mind, the capacity to see what's happening in another person, non-verbally, body language, uh, just what you call energy, the, the, the basic resonance of another person. If you're if you're present to that, you get a huge amount of information being fed in to your brain. And we have these mechanisms to be able to try to form some kind of picture in our mind about what is the information that's coming to us. I think that people who are really good at divination are really good at being present with all that information. That's, that is one thing that I think um, makes divination work. Which is also why you'll often see people that do divination or healing work, maybe even, um, and especially if they've been doing it for many hours or for many people, yes. that they can be very exhausted and drained, where some people might look at that and go, well, how tiring is it just to sit at a table and turn cards over for people? And yet what you're talking about is because energetically there's so much going on mm -hmm. that it's just like, you know, the same as if somebody had been running a marathon and now wants to come home and take a nap. That's right. That's right. So then another aspect for me of what goes on um, is As human beings, we participate in a kind of collective grouping of information that when you're born in a human body, just by the virtue of the fact you're born in this form, you get the download of pretty much, I think, all of the major archetypal information that human beings have created for eons. And symbols are a big part of that. Wouldn't you agree? 
I would I would think that's a very basic component of it. And there's one other thing that's important to know about the human mind. We are pattern recognition animals. We will see pattern and make meaning even where there isn't any. <laughs> it's just one of the things we do. And part of the reason we do that is because we're excellent at pattern recognition. It's a big skill that we got on the savannah when we were very small compared to the very large animals out there and we really needed to be able to survive. So we had to recognize certain patterns in order to gear ourselves up and take care of ourselves. But as the world got somewhat less threatening for us, we have another penchant, which is a penchant for superstition. And when you put pattern recognition together with superstition, you get a deep need to create meaning in the world. And then there's one other piece, which is we have an unfortunate, desperate need to know the future. Because we have a deep need to feel secure. And we don't like impermanence. That's certainly one of the big lessons of Buddhism is coming to terms with the impermanence of all things. But human beings are not good. We're not good at knowing the reality of uncertainty, that everything is uncertain, that everything is probably actually random, except within the randomness, there's pattern and there's organization. This is from chaos theory. So when you think about divination, and you put together the ability to posit another mind to feel like you can know what the other mind is actually thinking and feeling. And then you take our incredible capacity for pattern recognition, with that little bit of superstition thrown in so that we like to make meaning. And then what you do is you take a system of symbols that have had deep meaning, that have held meaning for human beings for generations and generations and thousands and thousands of years, I think that you could pretty much come up with a case for being able to look at a set of symbols, whether it's tarot cards, whether it's astrology, you know, whatever system you want to use, and be able to have a conversation with someone about what's happening in their life and what they would like to have happen. Don't you think? I do think. I better think, considering that's what I do. <laughs> um, how how can you start to discern when it has slipped too far into the superstition realm? Uh, well, I think you've probably been in the presence of really untalented readers. <laughs> Have you not? <laughs> I I. I should probably plead the fifth and say nothing. Come on. <laughs> We've all been in the presence of... Charlatans. At one, one time or another. And I'm sure you've also been in the presence of people who really hold a kind of... Um, definitiveness. There's something. They're so embodied in their capacity to know, yeah. to just, they embody truth in a way. Yeah. And you know the difference between those two. Yes. 
And I would say that, you know, the former is always going over the line with this, that they think they have to try to create something in order to make something happen. The truth is everything is already there. So all you have to do is open up to what's already there with a kind of um, curiosity and resonance and be intelligent about it and um, not be fixated on your own egoic needs in it. And I, I think you could probably do a pretty good job. It's almost like the patterns are like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and mm -hmm. divination or getting a reading of some sort is helping the person to become more consciously aware of the patterns that are already there and how to then take those patterns and put the pieces together to create the future that they want not to necessarily predict a future, but to help them work with those pieces mm -hmm. that are all, like you said, that everything is already there available to then be able to understand how to put them together to create the kind of picture that they're seeing that they would like their future to look like. Yeah. And I would say that's true in whatever context, relational context you're in, even in the psychotherapy container, I mean, I am very quick to tell people they know themselves much better than I could ever know them. And to me, people have all of what is available for them to be um, successful and happy in their lives. They've already got it. It's just we often um, get in our way mentally and emotionally. We think very small. Yeah. <laughs> very limited way of thinking about the way things are. And somehow it seems a, a very common thing that people think that someone else somehow sees or knows better than we do. Yes, of course. We're, we're pretty good at projection. Um, and when would you recommend someone seek out divination? And when would you recommend someone not seek out divination? Um, I, I, I think the answer to the question is, is what is your motive for seeking out divination? I mean, are you going thinking that somebody is going to tell you all the answers so you don't have to do anything? You don't have to explore. Are you going because you're unwilling to actually recognize that you're the one who has the power to know what's right for you? I mean. Are you doing this as a way to abdicate your power and responsibility in your life? I would say, don't go. Because all it will be probably is um, if you're with a talented um, practitioner like you, for instance, who is not interested <laughs> in being a fortune teller and taking people's power away, they're probably going to be pretty frustrated. But, you know, so I, otherwise they're just going to take get taken advantage of by someone who doesn't have the kind of values and talent. I often think the more emphasis someone places on predicting the future, the less likely I am to trust them as a reader or a practitioner. Well, I will say... Um, that certainly in astrology, there are astrological disciplines that are focused only on that, like electional astrology, you know, where somebody is 
you want to know when the right time is to do something and you go to an electional astrologer and they have their way of looking at the chart and telling you exactly when. But the, but the difference there is they're telling you when the right time would be, but it's still up to you as to what you do with that particular period of time. Rather, exactly. rather than what I was really alluding to was people who say, this is going to happen at such and such time. And basically you have no choice over it, that it's this very hardcore predictive. I know in Vedic astrology, you get that perhaps a little more. Well, Vedic astrology is very interesting. I'll, I'll tell you a quick and interesting story about this. Um, <clears throat> I once, and this is about maybe 12 years ago. So I, yeah, this is 12, this is before, um, this is probably just before I started to do graduate school for psychotherapy training. And um, I met an Indian woman and she was with her mother. And this was a young woman. And she found out I was an astrologer and she, uh, she said to her, she said to me, my mother wants me to get my Vedic chart done because she wants to know when I'm going to get married. And I don't want anything to do with this. And I looked at her and I said, tell me, um, where were you born? And she said, well, I was born in Bangalore, but when I was two, we moved to London and I grew up in London <laughs> and her mother was standing right there. And I said, I said, well, it, you know, I, my sense is you probably resonate more with a Western idea of free will. And she said, absolutely. She said, I am Indian culturally. She said, but you know, I just, the whole idea of the chart telling me when I'm going to get married seems crazy. And I said to her, well, it doesn't seem crazy to your mother because this is the culture that your mother grew up in. And this is the perspective that Vedic astrology has. And it can be useful. But clearly, philosophically, this doesn't resonate with you. And I think that's important even for people if they thought they wanted to seek out some sort of a reading, seek out both a person as well as a type of tool that resonates for them and they feel comfortable with rather than what they think they're supposed to go get or yes. what somebody else is telling them to go do. Yes. Um, and do you think there's any way for people to kind of ascertain what particular tool or approach might be best in a particular time or for a particular kind of question? Well, I, I would say, and this is the way, this is my perspective on tarot, the imagistic nature of tarot, the images themselves, you know, if you just turn a card over and you put it in front of somebody, they are resonating with their own deep psyche. They, they just are by virtue of there's an image. And as I said, we are pattern recognition animals. So, you know, people have that image and their relationship to that image somewhere in their brain. So it's sparking a slew of thoughts and images inside of the mind, feelings. And I think that Images can be a beautiful vehicle to go deeply into the psyche. Much better than astrology, I think. 
even though I will say um, there certainly are enough people in the psychology world who have used um, astrology diagnostically to actually look at the structure of psyche. You can do that, but it's more a diagnostic tool. It's hard for someone who doesn't know about astrology to have a relationship with astrology, like a direct relationship with it. Yeah, I think that something like astrology or palmistry, those kind of things are much more dependent on the practitioner. That's right. Whereas something like tarot or some other image-based kind of divination tool is is much more uh, able to work with and and the, the client themselves is much more able to be a part of the process. Yes, that's right. It's a direct relationship with their own psyche. Now, that said, it's their psyche in that moment, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. So they're seeing all of their psyche, their, their own um, deep psychological responses to something as it's showing up in that moment. But wow, you can learn so much about who you are and how you respond using tools like Tarot, I think. And also why there is not like some textbook set meaning for the cards that you just learn. Because if someone from an Indian culture looked Mm -hmm. at a card and somebody who grew grew up in the Midwest of America looks at a card and the image on that card, they may have an extremely different response or story or association for what they see in that image. Yes, yes. And of course, in that way, you and I, we're now talking about using divination in a deeply psychologically healing way. So, of course, then you get to that mushy area (laughs) where you say, okay, so here's this tarot consultant who's now mucking around with somebody in their own, in that person's psyche. (laughs) And you say, wow, that's something (laughs) I really want to be doing without some psychological training, which of course is up for debate, you know? But again, what I would say is even that journey with somebody in their psyche, if you can really be present, if you can really be just that, that presence that holds the container for the person to feel safe enough to explore in their own mind what's happening, that that is more than enough. That would make you a phenomenal divination practitioner, just if you could do that. And I know you do that, I see. Oh, well. <laughs> I know that's very much the way that you work with people. Yes. Well, another word that I'm very keen on as well, which I also think is a way of, at least for me, of determining if a reader is really doing what I think a reader and divination is supposed to do is the word empower or empowerment. So mm-hmm. it's it's helping that client see those things in themselves that the reading is bringing up and showing to them. Yes. And then how they can best work with those to move forward or to take action or to create the future that they're envisioning for themselves rather than simply a reader who is saying, you need to do this. Exactly. But the reader who says you need to do this is missing the gem. You know, they're missing the gem, the treasure in the experience of having a direct relationship 
with your own mind. That is the client having a direct relationship with their own psyche. They're the junk food of readers versus the organic <laughs> reader. <laughs> um, so when you were talking about like the study around being able to posit the mind and those theories, uh-huh. is there any part of the people that study those kind of things that will push outward and look at being able to do that in other than human species, be it animals, absolutely, even, you know, on an esoteric level, yeah, you start to get into plants, which gets into the whole idea of using herbs and the energy of herbs and stones and crystals and the earth and all of that. So there is a relatively new field, but it is a serious field. It's actually called plant neuroscience. And it's sort of affectionately called plant neuroscience because, of course, plants don't have neurons. But what plants do have is they have DNA and they have information and they have chemicals in which to impart that information. You know, neurons work through electricity and chemical reaction. That's that's how we think. It's just, you know, everything we think of is our mind is just a bunch of electrical impulses and chemical reactions. Plants have exactly the same thing. All species have the same thing. And there's there's actually a lot of affective neuroscience, which is the neuroscience of emotions, that's done on animals to understand our basic impulses. Um, and the field has exploded in the last 15 or 20 years. Um, so, and this is not woo-woo at all. None of this is considered woo-woo. It's... It's different than, there was a book in the 70s called The Secret Life of Plants that many of us remember. Um, and it's, it's not quite like that. It's not <clears throat> neuroscience as in plants thinking. It's more neuroscience as in plants being able to detect their environment, to be able to respond to other entities, plants, whatever, energies in the environment, to have relationship with things, I mean, life is life. And again, we have to say, nobody knows what consciousness is. And so I, oh, we don't know. And, and I think a lot of what you're just talking about, whether it's quantum physics or the, the um, study with plants and things that is now starting to burgeon, mm-hmm. um, really is starting to just scientifically prove many of the things that actually would have been considered superstitious uh, way Uh back when, you know, and whether it's the person who recommended a plant to somebody in the village to treat their illness because they said that they had a dialogue with the plant and it said, this is what I am able to help with or treat. Mm -hmm. But I think that goes back to what we started with was they were in that energetic interaction and exchange, that presence of each other doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a person. And be in the presence of the animal or the plant. And that's what I think we've lost a lot of in our world today and what we would really do well to come back to. And I think that's why even people respond to, say, organic food. Because there is this presence that you enter into, even without thinking about it or realizing it, that is pure and natural from the earth and hasn't been mixed with other things that is getting in the way of that pure energetic exchange. Yes, it's true. It's everything you say is true. That's what I tell my clients too. Yeah. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I mean, we we are in relationship to everything. We have the capacity to be in relationship to everything. The question is whether or not we are interested in being in relationship to everything. And I think largely what I do in psychotherapy is help people come back into relationship, not only with who they are authentically, but with the actuality of this experience of the world as it is, not the distorted way that their mind is telling them it is. Which is where mindfulness can even be, I would, what you were just talking about and mindfulness then expands that out because if they're able to do that with themselves, Mm -hmm. then they're able to go out and say, be standing next to a tree and be mindful of the tree or look at the food in front of them on a plate and be mindful of that food and interact with it and engage it in a different way. Yes, the ordinary is quite extraordinary if you're willing to be present. But just like in the the difference between those two words, you have to make the extra effort in order to see Mm -hmm. it and experience it in order to find the extraordinary that's all around us. The other thing I would say is where these two things come together for me is the stripping away. You know, often when, when people are in an experience of, for instance, having a tarot consultation, they may be seeing things they've never seen before. And they often what gets stripped away is their assumptions about the way things are, the way they think things are. When they see a certain card and, you know, they have that moment of, of, wow, this is reminding me of such and such, or, oh my gosh, you know, I'm feeling that, That's an awakening moment where your assumptions get ripped away. And I think that really good psychotherapy is geared to make that kind of awakening happen in people's psyche, to strip away the assumptions that are incorrect, these old habitual assumptions about the way they think they are, they think other people are, they think the world is, that just aren't true. And I think that going in for divination is doing that at an even deeper level. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you wanted to be esoteric about it, it could be doing it on a multiple lifetime level or different things, but it's just helping to go to some of those other places that are a bit outside of the normal field of vision. Well, well I, what I will say is that the process of psychotherapy to me is completely magical. I, I don't know how it works. It is, it's just incredible. I mean, it really is incredible. And um, I rarely, I mean, I, maybe in all these years now, maybe once or twice somebody has asked me, if I would run their astrological chart for them and, you know, look at it diagnostically. I mean, I have the skills to do it, but I hardly use that really in my psychotherapeutic process. On the other hand, there have been more than one occasion where a client was talking about something that was really disturbing for them, something happening. And I just had in my mind the image of a tarot card. And I thought, wow, what would it be like if I took out my laptop 
<laughs> and I just brought up the image of that card from the Rider Waite deck and just showed it to them and, you know, said, you know, what, what shows up for you when you see this? And not doing any direct divination at all, but just letting them have a relationship with an image that is, could speak more deeply to a part of them that they might not have direct access to. And it's always interesting. And I have never had it fail. By the, by the end, they always say, can I print that out? And like, you know, have it. <laughs> and is there any reason if, if somebody was either in therapy or is thinking of pursuing therapy of some sort? Yeah. Is there any reason? And here I'm thinking more whether there's some sort of legal thing or whatever. Is yeah. there any reason why they couldn't ask their therapist to um, use a tool like that? Well, to, again, it depends how you're using it. I mean, if you're actually, if you're operating under your clinical license and you're giving a reading, you're not operating under your clinical license. So that's unethical. But if you're using an image as a way to um, allow a person to have a relationship with their own psyche, a different kind of relationship, um, that's a tool of psychotherapy to let the person have a relationship with an image. That's the difference here. Yeah. Well, I think that's good for people to hear because that would also help them ascertain if they could feel that the person they are either working with or thinking of working with is um, honorable, if they can trust working with that person, or if somebody is just going to try to do a tarot reading for them rather than actually use it as one of the tools in the therapeutic process. Yeah, I, I can't say that I know any clinicians, licensed clinicians who would um, do something so unethical. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that you don't. It doesn't, they're not out there. <laughs> That's but right. I, I, but I, I like to just give that to people so that it's just one thing to look for as a criteria, just like interviewing a real estate agent or whatever. You know, it's if you're going to go kind of interview these a couple of people to find the right fit for you rather than just because somebody has half the alphabet after their name doesn't mean they're suddenly the best person for you to work for. That's true. Um, and if, if somebody has had really good uh, experience or has it's been really beneficial for them, say they've gone and had divination readings that have been very beneficial for them on many levels, not as just predicting the future then not to be afraid to perhaps look for someone that might be open to that or work with some of those tools in some way because they do exist. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's a whole field of psychological astrology. There, you know, there is, you can be trained as a clinician in psychological astrology. When, and when I was in my early twenties, I was in New York city. And when I f first started, I mean, I learned tarot first I started to learn tarot, I guess I was 19. But in, when I moved into Manhattan and I got interested in astrology, there was a huge movement at that point uh, among psychotherapists, licensed psychotherapists, to embrace astrology. So I basically learned astrology from the perspective of psychological astrology and depth psychology. They, they were very intertwined back then in the early 80s in the astrology world. So I think the thing that I would caution people about really is 
the other way around. You know, if you're having clinical depression or you're having some kind of very um, life um, impacting anxiety that makes it impossible for you to do anything or you have trauma and trauma is creating a set of symptoms in your life that make your life unworkable, um, you should be getting clinical help and not using divination as the way to work through that. Well, I agree. And I think that's also the mark of a good reader is to recognize when somebody comes in and has that to be able to say, instead of just wanting to get the money, to be yes. able to say to them, this or I am not the right person for what you're needing. And then to have a list of resources they can refer them to, to say, this is might this might be better for what you need right now. That's right. Feel free to come back. Mm -hmm. But for the moment, this may not be right. So I think that's also another thing that, a good reader should be able to, to do. Now, since our theme is divination. Yes. Um, perhaps, and I know that especially your perspective on astrology is it's much more personal individual and it's very difficult to look at bigger things, but is there anything, I, I tend to think of it as like looking at the weather patterns, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, if you're really interested in the aspects and formations that the planets make as they travel through the constellations, and you're interested in what that means for you in particular, it's always best to go to a talented astrologer who really can do your natal transits for you because um, big, broad sweeping generalizations about this and how it's going to impact you personally, to me, that is just bogus. Don't even bother. On the other hand, what I will say is because of the archetypal nature of the energies of the planets and because human beings have been having this archetypal relationship with those energies for thousands of years, what the planets are doing has an impact. Um, we won't go into the other kinds of science that there has been about how the planets can have an impact through the solar winds and through the tides and things like that on human beings. So I'll just say that and let that be. I mean, I don't read that much of astrology on the internet, frankly. I'm not all that interested <laughs> in most of what's written about astrology. I do actually read Philip Sedgwick's work because I think he's – uh, brilliant and he uses all the planets um, even the extra solar planets he uses the galactic center I mean he's he's just expanding the boundaries of astrology in so many ways and um, he doesn't make stupid predictions <laughs> so, <laughs> so I know there's all kinds of hideous predictions out there, but what I would just say to people is don't pay attention to any of that um, because if disaster is going to happen, it's going to happen anyway, and it's better to be mindful and prepared and awake and aware when disaster happens so that the disaster is less for you because you were actually present. 
or it's not a disaster at all because just like when I was talking about weather systems, if a big rainstorm is coming, mm -hmm. you could take advantage of that by installing rain barrels to catch the water. And now you have yep. water for the garden for the rest of the summer rather That's than just looking at it as, oh, this rainstorm came and flooded my basement. Exactly. Yes. Having a wide perspective. Yes. On the foibles of human experience. But I think that speaks to what we were talking about overall to kind of sum that up is divination allows us to be best prepared and yes. to make the most of what is happening in us and around us, especially for the things that are perhaps outside of our control to some extent, so that we can make the best of it and the most of it rather than just feel as if we've been subjected to it and are a victim of it. Um, I think that that is good advice. Yes, I agree. And I would also say that even with that, um, the unexpected always is going to happen and everything is impermanent. Everything arises, exists, and passes away in its own time, in its own way. And um, the human mind is not the controller of experience. Well, I think that just deflated many people. <laughs> no, it deflated it deflated their uh egoic distortions yes. <laughs> but not their essence no <laughs> so if people wanted to get in contact with you to see about perhaps either working with you as a therapist or as an astrologer if you still offer that what would be the best way for them to do that um you know uh i I don't do a lot of astrological work anymore. Mostly I just work for, you know, people who I've worked with before. Um, my website is lisadalemiller.com. It's just my name. And, um, you know, I think that's the best way for people to get, you know, just to see more of what I do and what I have to offer. I'm a Dharma teacher, so I have Dharma Talks for a free download on the site and um and on itunes as well oh yes yes and i have many meditation practices that have been up on itunes for years so <laughs> and that's there are podcasts they're all for free and, and and of course my book is coming out uh although that book is it's a clinical textbook and it is somewhat scholarly um don't let that scare you but let, let's not underestimate my audience <laughs> no no not at all <laughs> have colleagues who are like really it's scholarly <laughs> and clinical do i really want to read that <laughs> so what's the what's the name of the book the book is called effortless mindfulness genuine mental health through awakened presence and, that's and it's it's already on amazon for pre-order so you could just put my name into amazon or put effortless mindfulness in either one and the the pages from uh rutledge my publisher will come up and it comes out April 17th. So it says on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, people. Breaking news. <laughs> I get my information from Amazon. <laughs> it's a scoop. Keep listening to this show in the future. You don't know what scoops you might hear. Um, and, and there will be a website specifically for the book. Will that go into greater information and expand on the book or just be informational about the book? No, actually, the website is going to be um, a, a very active place. It'll have, it'll grow over time, but 
the because the book is a clinical manual um, and it does not have a CD attached to it, I'm actually recording all of the meditation practices that I teach in the book for clinicians to offer to their patients. I'm going to be recording them and offering them for download on the book's website for a nominal fee. And I probably will be, um, I've started to do a series of um, video pieces on the Buddhist psychology and mindfulness-based psychotherapy. So there'll be some of that as well. And I'll do more, you know, writing. It, it'll be uh, it'll mostly be for clinicians, although there'll be stuff for clients to take advantage of as well. I always do that. And is that site up or when will it? No. When, when are you anticipating that it will be up? It'll coincide with the release of the book. Ah, okay. Yeah. So probably not till the beginning of April. All right. Right now I'm being very secretive about the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> I really haven't announced any of this publicly except with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently if I go on Amazon, I could find out all sorts of things that you think are secret, but are just right out there for the world to see. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's on the page actually is not secret to me. <laughs> so, Well, I want to say thank you very much for having been willing to spend some time and talk about this. This was so much fun. I'm really glad that you were willing to explore um, this topic today because I, I think you've had a lot of really good insight and um, you know I, I I hope that your listeners have a sense of how talented you are at what you do because I mean I've seen you grow in your skills over the years and um, you are a treasure, and I encourage anybody out there to take advantage of the work that HiC does because it is of the highest quality. Well, I, I appreciate you saying that. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and again, if you want to find out more information about Lisa, you can visit her website at lisadalemiller.com. So stay tuned and we'll be back with our live readings segment. And if you'd like a reading during the show, feel free to Skype in or to call 646-716-5510 in order to get into the queue. So stay tuned and we'll be right back.
Greetings, space cadets, and welcome to the happy Roman New Year of 2017. <laughs> and it seems, given some developments that have happened over the last few months, that we have entered our dystopia, which is the title of this month's post. Um, in honor of the January 1st Mars conjunction with Neptune and Aquarius, the January 7th Sun conjunction with Pluto and Sagittarius, and the January 10th Sun square with Uranus and Pisces, we shall explore the trope of dystopia and explore its implications for our world. The aspects deal with salient impulses. The first is the need to address actively, this would be Mars, illusions and delusions, Neptune, at the heart of mass culture, Aquarius. The confronting of sovereign power, as symbolized by the sun, with collective power as symbolized by Pluto on the world stage, symbolized by Sagittarius, and finally sovereign power confronting the rude awakening, Uranus, of populist suffering, which is symbolized by Pisces which in the presence of no viable alternatives has defaulted to the dystopian option, soft authoritarianism. Witness would be the current incoming administration in the United States and some more other contentious political battles occurring throughout the world. Dystopian literature and film is instrumental in helping us to understand the paradoxical undercurrent of the human urge for a perfected world and what can go disastrously wrong in the grand designs of these schemes. Further, studying it intently also helps us to avoid the double-think and double-speak that emerges when we are faced with an actual dystopia, which humanity has faced many times before in its history. It's difficult to deny that there are some striking parallels between contemporary society and some of the dystopias explored in fiction. The U.S. woke up to the reality between 2011 and 2016 that our police forces are more akin to paramilitary forces that will use lethal violence on unarmed citizens for being the wrong skin color. That they are part of a bigger apparatus of state control, a police state, which is in identical to Philip K. Dick's Cry My Tears, the Policeman Said. There are fringe groups with extreme religious ideologies who've hijacked the political process to introduce legislation like the First Amendment Defense Act, which would pr protect those who discriminate citing religious concerns, which sends, sounds analogous to the conditions that gave rise to the theocratic dystopia of the Republic of Gilead in Margaret Atwood's A Handmaid's Tale. We are currently on a path of technological upheaval that could entrench dynastic wealth into the hands of a few corporate owners of those novel technologies and platforms, creating a society of stark inequality where the majority do not have access to these technologies as they are sold to those who can afford them. All of this is covered in novels like Oryx and Crake by Margaret Atwood, Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep 
by Philip K. Dick, and finally, Wind Up Girl by Paoli Basigalupi. The U.S. is certainly awakening to a harsh reality. Denizens of the U.S. have long had the privilege to consider dystopias merely literary or cinematic tropes. It seems that 2016 disabused many of us of this notion, and many of us found ourselves waking up to the cold reality that we are effectively living in a dystopia. There is hope, though, as it seems another world is gestating in the looming darkness. It is a nascent world that may begin to address difficult intersections of of history. The function of dystopian literature and cinema perhaps is to remind us that the dark regimes do not last and to steal our resolve to make a better world. This month, I've decided that each sign will be given uh, a single dystopian film which connects with the themes of the sign and will basically give us the craft of the horoscopes. Another thing I will be doing too is I will be only reading off a couple of signs in the hopes that more folks will come on over to the blog to have a read. Now, if you need the address for the blog, that address is flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. Again, that's flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. So I will start essentially with what I'm going to do is just basically read off my favorite, the favorite ones that I have so far and go from there. We'll start with Aries, who has been given Blade Runner, a 1983 classic based on the Philip K. Dick novel, Do Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The film brings up a number of subjects, space exploration, slavery, and what it is what it is to be human in the first place, and inverts these, causing us to question human supremacy. The parallel to our own reality is that we are on the verge of experiencing the technological upheaval depicted in the movie, and if we are not careful, its unfoldment could create this dystopia. A few developments mirror it. The rationale has been a desire to explore deep space and the interstellar mediums while ignoring severe problems on Earth. Beyond this, some technologists have predicted that machine automation will begin to replace human labor, which means many could be disenfranchised from economic participation, and with wealth concentrating into ever fewer hands, this represents a financial crisis unparalleled in our experience. Aries, whether human or replicant, do keep in mind that even androids have inception dates, would likely lead a slave rebellion. And we find ourselves once again at that critical juncture of history where such a thing is called for. However, Aries, however Aries does it, whether it is publicly or through a quieter subterfuge or the countless ways we are secretly transgressive, we must all become dangerous to a soft authoritarian attempt. Aries is the firebrand and freedom fighter of the Zodiac, and their understanding does not stop at mere human liberation. I'm going to go ahead now and jump ahead to Libra, which has actually been assigned a movie from 2009 that's very unusual. It's called Code 46. Code 46, a British dystopian film, features a society starkly divided by those who live inside highly dense cities and those who live outside the cities. Access is tightly regulated and restricted by an individual's access to health documents known as papels. 
The film mainly deals with the social implications of biotechnology on society. The, sp the film speaks to the need for access to vital services and the underlying principle of fairness that guides these systems. This is, of course, of significant Libran concern. The parallels to our current reality is definitely the threat to the Affordable Care Act that the incoming administration has signaled would be eliminated. I am hoping many of you will become as outraged as I am at this state of affairs and put up a feisty resistance, something borrowed from your Aries sisters and your playmates on the other end of the Libra-Aries axis. You have the unique diplomacy to resist in a way that is not threatening, and because of this, you can infiltrate deeper into the apparatus than many others can, and once there, you can cause the maximum disruption. Given current pressing realities, it is what you must do. And finally, I will do one more before wrapping up, and it's going to be Pisces. And the movie for you is the 1971 George Lucas, who would go on to create Star Wars. His first experimental film from 1971 is THX 1138. In the movie THX 1138, we are entreated to an underground dystopian society set in an undecipherable time in the deep future. The society is dominated by a totalitarian control of android police, and the populace is kept under control through the use of powerful drugs which blunt all emotion, largely so that they complete highly precise and dangerous labors that have to do with controlling behavior and building more android police. The parallels to our own situation are stunningly obvious. The U.S. has ostensibly become a police state where behavior is monitored and controlled in various ways, from consumerism to arguing over debates that are inconsequential and distract from the ones that are meaningful. For the connection, we look to the nation's hinterlands and notice that in these rural communities is a burgeoning opioid crisis, leading to spiraling addiction rates and shortened life expectancies. Among a demographic that has been battered by the decisions of Washington politicos, economic inertia, and policies that have favored the wealthy over the rank and file. Factor in economic dislocations and feelings of powerlessness over systems which entrap many individuals into the cycles of history, and it is hardly surprising this is happening as conditions have created it. I mention this Pisces as you are among the few humans on this planet reminiscent of the characters from the show Sensate, able to feel the joy and pain of others as your own, a stunningly sensitive empathy that can predispose you to a need to escape, hopefully avoiding the chemical means to do so. Whether you are caught up in the epidemic or are concerned for those who are, your task is to turn compassion into revolution and use your immense creativity to turn the tides of history. Pisces holds the energy of the cosmos in its archetype, and so it is uniquely endowed with the capacity to change big cycles and initiate new processes. That, my dears, is a wrap. 
We are fortunate to be at a point in history of a turning point, a crossroads, where there is still the option of choosing which path we go down. On one hand is the dystopian trajectory of, trajectory of the status quo, and on the other, another possible world. It's yet to be born, and it is currently gestating in the womb of historical precedent, awaiting the moment of its birth. It is calling to all of us to midwife it into the light of day. Resistance will be vital if we are to turn the tide of this dystopia and create the world that is Pandora's promise. The final butterfly of hope imprisoned under the lid of a paradoxical box. Be sure to also check out my blog to read the other signs that I was not able to get to in this post. The blog address is www.flying punkrockunicorn.com Again, that's flyingpunkrockunicorn.com Be sure to check me out on Facebook. I'm at Prometheus Jones, the astrologer. Uh, you can also contact me uh, via the Prometheus Jones site at Facebook if you would like a personal reading. I do personal readings. Simply drop me a message there at uh, Prometheus Jones, the astrologer on Facebook. You can also read some of my other other articles where I am known as Prometheus over at uh, Eric Selixson's outfit, The Sidereolist. That's www.thesidereolist.com. Sidereolist is spelt S I D. E-R-E-A-L-I-S-T. Well, Space Cadets, that's a wrap. I will see you all next month. Same channel, same frequency. Bye! with host Heisey Ludmers. We hope you enjoyed the show. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with high C. Please join us next time for Evolve with Robin White Turtle Lizney, Thursday afternoon at 2 p.m. This is Deb Caracella. Thank you for joining us. 